Well, good morning. You can have a seat. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come into your presence this morning, and we do it with hearts and with minds, with all of who we are. And yet we know we, we come into this place um, not coming into some kind of spiritual vacuum, but we bring our lives in here. We bring the joys and the, the pains. We bring the celebration. We bring the grief. We bring just the things that are burdensome and that weigh us down. We bring all of those in here with us. We are whole people. We are not compartmentalized people. We're not spiritual people here and non-spiritual people everywhere else in our lives that this is who we are. This is how you've created us. This is the life that we live. And so we acknowledge that to you this morning. And we ask uh, that as we come into your presence this morning that we would know uh, that you invite us to lay our burdens down because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. That you give us rest, that you give us life, that you desire us to know you and to experience true life in you. And so I ask on behalf of myself, I ask on behalf of all of us who are here this morning, wherever we're coming in, whatever we're going through, whatever this season of life is for us, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would meet us here, that you would intersect our lives this morning with what you need us to hear and what you want us to be challenged with. Our hearts need to be encouraged. And so, Holy Spirit, we do ask you to come and to fill this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the beginning few verses of Psalm chapter 1 reads this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That's curious to me. Because what's the first thing that pops into your mind when you hear the phrase, the Ten Commandments? What's the first thing that pops into your mind when you hear the law of God? Maybe it depends on your background. Maybe it depends on your family dynamic, your political affiliation. Maybe it means rules and burdens, do's and don'ts, stone tablets set up in the front yards of people's homes, <laughs> lawsuits about courthouses and public schools. Maybe it means beating people into moral submission. That's why I find it curious here that the psalmist 
wrote that there is blessing in God's law. The next few verses, the psalmist talks about the person who delights in the law of God, who meditates on the law of God. He writes that he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Freedom, life, success, flourishing, according to the psalmist, come from laws and rules and commands. And that sounds completely different than what we are taught to believe, right? Something in me resists that. It it fights against that idea that what's best for me, what's best for my life, what is ultimately going to bring me freedom are rules that are imposed on me. That doesn't sound like freedom to me. Uh, Now retired Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote this. He wrote, at the heart of liberty is the right to defend one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. In other words, true freedom, according to Justice Kennedy, is the right to believe what you want, to live the way you want, to define meaning the way you want. To be a human being in the way that you think is best. And honestly, that sounds better to me. That sounds right to me. That sounds good to me. But listen, we have more freedom of choice in our civilization today than in any other civilization in the history of the world, right? We have more access to choices than any people who have ever lived in the history of humanity. And yet, we are a society that is racked with anxiety, depression, loneliness, isolation, addiction. What is supposed to give us freedom, what is supposed to make our lives better, has left us in a place of not freedom, but bondage. Those things don't sound like freedom to me. Anxiety, depression, addiction, isolation, loneliness. That's not my idea of what real life is. And yet each of us every single day interact with a world, whether personally, whether in our family, friends, co-workers, this is our existence. This is our reality. These are the things that we face. Because what we fail to understand is that freedom, true freedom, isn't unlimited and unrestricted choice to be who I am and who I want to be and believe what I want to believe and live like I want to live. Real life and freedom isn't just freedom from, but what we're going to see this morning is that it's freedom to. 
Real freedom isn't just freedom from, it's freedom to. And we're going to see that this morning, that God gave Israel a law so that the people who he delivered out of slavery in Egypt wouldn't fall into just a different kind of slavery. That God gave his people a law. He gave them rules. He gave them constraints so that they could know him and truly live free as he had designed them and created them to live. And as we look at Old Testament Israel, as we look at the Ten Commandments this morning and dive into those, we have to take a look at our own existence. We have to take a look at who we are as a church. We have to see Israel as a paradigm for us. That what God, it's so easy for us to say that these things are just, this is Old Testament stuff. This is law stuff. This is Old Covenant stuff. That it doesn't matter for us. That it's not important for us. But what we see God doing here matters greatly for us. God's law what we are going to see is less about individual, personal morality. And it's more about reflecting the truth of who God is to each other and to the rest of a watching world. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And hear these words of the Lord to his people Israel. Starting in verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to those, to thousands of those who, have, who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder 
and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Before we get into this passage, the, the Ten Commandments, or as the Israelites knew them, the Ten Words, I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 11. Would you turn there with me? Genesis chapter 11. I want to look at verses 1 through 9 of Genesis chapter 11. Listen to these words. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. And they have one, all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, and so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So God scatters and divides the nations because they had come together to make a name for themselves, to live autonomously, to be, in other words, like gods unto themselves. God was dispersing them and scattering them, not because he felt self-conscious, not because he felt selfish, but because God had made mankind to know him and to worship him and to recognize that he was God over all other gods. And yet people, the people of the earth here are, are, are reaching out and seeking to claim the authority that God and God alone has for themselves. And God steps in and scatters them. But as they are scattered, they take that desire to out-God God with them. And they take it and they spread it all over the world as they create different nations and different language groups and different ways of being. The spread of sin and rebellion against God begins to spread across the world. But what is God's answer going to be? What is God going to do to answer this international spread of sin? Well, look at the beginning of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country 
and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all those families that I scattered out throughout the earth will be blessed. God's answer to the international spread of sin was to create a new community that would bring international blessing. God's answer to scattering was to create a people for himself to be scattered out and be a blessing. This is what God's plan was. Skip ahead to chapter 18 of Genesis. Chapter 18 of Genesis. And we see God coming to Abraham. We find Abraham childless. Not a great start for becoming a a great nation, right? He does not have any children. And in chapter 18, we see that God comes to Abraham. And he promises Abraham a son. And what we see, though, is this promise is made against the backdrop of God confronting the wickedness of the world. Look at uh, verse 16 of chapter 18. The men that God had sent there to, to proclaim this good news of a son to Abraham, they set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Catch this. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Did you catch that? God chose Abraham so that Abraham and all of Abraham's family and his descendants that would come after him would live a certain way, would live in a life of righteousness, a life of justice in the midst of the Sodoms of the world. And as they would do this, as they would live and be a community and a family and a nation of righteousness and justice, this would bring about what God had promised. And what did God promise Abraham? I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you so that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We have to understand that God's intentions have been clear from the beginning, haven't they? And we've seen that over the last few weeks. And that those intentions have not changed when we find the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And as the people huddled around this mountain, God speaks to them. God doesn't use a prophet. God doesn't use a mouthpiece. God speaks to them directly. And they hear the voice of God. These words were directly from Yahweh himself. And what we see here is that God is going to begin to give shape 
to this community. That as this community begins to take its identity from the Lord, God's desire is that this community, as they approach the land of Canaan that God had prepared for them, would be a people of righteousness and justice, so that through them all the nations of the world would be blessed. God begins this back in Exodus chapter 20 by saying, I am. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am shapes everything that we're going to look at that follows. God brought them out of Egypt because of his covenant. He loved them as his firstborn son. He had a purpose for them. And through these laws that God will hand down to them, God is giving them a piece of himself. God is revealing more about who he is, more about what his desires are for them and for the world. God is giving them a greater look into what he is like. And the first command reflects that, doesn't it? They were not to have any other gods. Because God delivered them, because God had redeemed them, because God had shown himself to be worthy in the exodus coming out of Egypt, God had shown himself to be worthy and more powerful and above all other gods at the Red Sea. They were to worship him alone. And this was a major distinction for them. This was a major separation from all of the other nations that they would encounter. Because all of these other nations worshipped multiple gods. They had multiple gods that they bowed down to, that they lived before. And God said, you are to be different. You are to worship me and me alone. God's desire was that this would be true of all nations. That all nations, as we have seen, would know that God is God. But it had to start in Israel. Their worship alone had to begin here before they could share that with all the other nations that they would come in contact with. The second command we see here is connected to it. God told them to refrain from carving wood, from sculpting stone, something that they observed in nature. Plants, animals, stars, whatever. God was jealous for his people's worship because he is God alone. He desired that his people worship him alone. He desired and demanded Israel's exclusiveness, their faithfulness to him. And what's interesting in here is that God brings before them the truth and the reality of corporate responsibility. He says that he is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. He also says that he will show love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What we see here is that God is saying to disobey him now had an effect on the future. Their obedience or their disobedience had far-reaching implications and consequences. The unfaithfulness of a few now would affect the whole. This is also 
This is, this is really important, and we're going we're gonna to come back to that. But let's move on in the sake of time to command number three. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Why? Why is this important to God? Because his name is his salvation name. His name is his, who he is. God's name is God himself. God puts value on his name. God says, my name is what he swears by. He is faithful to his name. He is faithful to who he is. And when the people were to speak the name of God, they were to represent God as he really is. Tell the truth about God, which means to honor God, to bless God, to praise God, to celebrate who God is, to proclaim the truth about God. This is more than God saying, hey, don't, don't get upset and say, oh, my God. It's more than that. It's more than that. That wasn't God's intention here. God wanted the truth about who he was to be on their lips. He wanted the truth about who he was to to be what was spoken and the baseline and the understanding of who they were as a community. Command number four, remember the Sabbath. We've spent a lot of time on Sabbath this year, but In short, God wanted them to remember why it was significant and to keep it as something special. God wanted his people to follow his pattern of life, working and resting. Because God knew this would bring order to their life. This would bring structure to their life. This would be a healthy way of being, especially as they approach the land of Canaan and its chaos and its disorder. God is saying, keep the Sabbath. Look at the way I work. Look at the way I rest. This is the pattern for humanity. Israel was to be a new creation community. That God was bringing his way of being, what his intentions were for this world and for the people who live in this world. God was bringing that reality and that truth to this world through Israel. And so they, in their day-to-day life, they were to reflect what God says is good for life and the way that God desires people to live. Following God's pattern would give them order. It would give them life. Number five, honor their parents. Honor their parents. Now, just like taking God's name in vain, what does vain mean? How do we define that? Just like not doing work on the Sabbath, what is work, what is not work? What does honor actually mean here? Will children ever outgrow this command? Will there ever be a time where we shouldn't honor our parents? Or we get old enough where that doesn't matter? Well, there's ambiguity here. Because God wanted Israel to work this out. God wanted Israel to continually be thinking about this. To apply these things. These these truths here are not static truths given to them in a vacuum, but they are to be a part of their life, a part of their existence. Let me offer this, though, as a possible explanation. We all know that there's a tremendous amount of vulnerability 
in family life, isn't there? Children cannot feed themselves, cannot clothe themselves, cannot uh, dress, um, uh, uh, bathe themselves. For a time in the child's life, that child is completely vulnerable, needs to be cared for, needs to be provided for, needs to be protected for. But as that child grows, as the years go by, those roles and those needs tend to reverse, don't they? That there's a time in all of our lives as parents where we will become more and more vulnerable. That we will need to be cared for. That we will need to be protected. That we will need to be provided for. Honoring parents means honoring the generations that came before them because it was necessary for them to be a healthy society. It was necessary for them to be a community that reflected the justice and the righteousness of God. Long life would come, yes, for individuals who are being cared for and protected for. They would be able to live their life with love and protection and care, but also for the community. Generation after generation would be protected. Generation after generation would be cared for. Generation after generation would not have to face the vulnerability of life on their own. How they treated those who came before them would be how they would be treated by those who come after them. Let's group numbers six and seven together. Don't murder or commit adultery. The foundation of both of these lies in the reality that humanity bears God's image. God has authority over all human life. So humanity isn't to take life lightly because life belongs to God. Obviously, murder destroys peace in the community. Obviously, murder destroys peace and goodness between persons. It shows contempt for God's desire for peace and God's desire for wholeness. And likewise, God brought man and woman together in the garden. Their differentness and their oneness was a reflection of God himself. Adultery conveyed something untrue about who God was and about his oneness. For a married man, for a married woman to have sex with another man or another woman ripped at the social fabric of this community that God was creating. It created distance, upheaval, hurt, shame, disunity, all things that are untrue about God. All things that give us a different image about of who God is and what God desires life to be. Number eight, don't steal. It breeds distrust. It creates conflict. Number nine, don't testify falsely. You see, their justice system was a lot different than ours with DNA evidence and surveillance evidence and all the things that we have to corroborate eyewitness testimony. They needed people to tell the truth or there would be no justice. There would be no equity. 
God was saying, do not testify falsely against someone else because there can't be justice. There can't be equity. And they would need this as a community of people. They would need this as they entered the chaos of the land of Canaan. Lastly, number 10, don't covet. Wanting a neighbor's wife, the neighbor's animal, possessions will lead to adultery, will lead to stealing, will lead to bearing false witness. God ends these 10 words like he began them, that there's a heart of the matter, that desires, that where we begin internally affects how we behave outwardly and how we treat each other. Listen to what one commentator wrote about this. Each commandment represents some aspect of the likeness of God. And therefore, obedience to God's law gives expression to what they really are, being in God's likeness and results in their true freedom. The law of the Lord was addressed to those brought out of bondage, and its aim was not to bring them into a new bondage, but rather to establish them in their new freedom. Once more, the law of liberty in the Garden of Eden is a perfect illustration. The single negative command, you must not eat of one tree, left open the broad prospect that you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. God wanted his people to enjoy all the blessings of their covenant relationship with him. And these 10 words, these 10 commands begin and end with the interior aspect of their obedience, how they are required to think about God and their relationships with other people. You see, these commands were never just intended to be behaviors that they were to implement. They call for purity of heart and purity of mind as well. Something deeper. And we see that here in this last section. God gives them, he speaks directly to them. And what do the people do? They back away. They're terrified. They're afraid they can't stand in the presence of God. And they cry out to Moses, from now on, Moses, we just want to hear you talk. You know, you tell us what God has to say. We, we don't want to hear from God himself. But look at Moses' words. He says, don't be afraid. Why? Because God wants you to be afraid. Don't be afraid because God wants you to fear him. These laws and commands were given in God's presence. And as they were given, the Israelites must have had some kind of realization that their lives were being lived under the holy and the awesome and the powerful gaze of someone who is completely different than they are. Their relationship with him and with each other was a serious matter because of who God was and how God had created them and how God had delivered and redeemed them and brought them to himself. 
And in the realization of that, they drew back. They stepped away. They put distance between themselves and God. But look how beautiful this is. And look at all the imagery that is happening here. The people stand back, but Moses goes forward. Moses steps in between. Moses mediates. People, the people recognized that they could not deal with this God. They could not deal with him. The fear and the terror of crossing God, of getting sideways of God, shook them. They needed someone to step in and make peace. You see what's going on here, right? You see how this is being written. You see what this points to and what this foreshadows. Last week I made mention of this, that ultimately what would happen here is that the people would get sideways of God, wouldn't they? Because there's no way they could do this. There's no way that they could live this way. And what God is doing here is he's incrementally bringing them to a point where they recognize they needed something more, something deeper. And as Jeremiah 31 says, they needed for this law not to be just before them and spoken to them. They needed it to be written on their hearts. They needed it to go deeper, to change them, to transform them. And this is what Jesus is getting after in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus coming and basically saying, I'm here not to throw this law out and not to tell you that this doesn't matter anymore, that God has a different way of doing anything, things, that these things aren't important to God anymore. Jesus said, no, I came to fulfill this. I came to make this more real to you and to give more definition of what this looks like by connecting it to the fact that it's not just about obeying these things. It's about in getting these things in us to transform us. These things, these commands, these rules that God has given them to reveal who he is, to reveal who they are supposed to be in this world needed to go deeper. That it's not enough just to refrain from killing somebody, we also need to address the hate in our hearts. That it's not enough to just refrain from having sexual relations with someone that we're not married to. We need to address the lust that we have in our minds and our hearts. That it's not just enough to testify and tell the truth in court, but we need to tell the truth and be truthful in our personal relationships with each other. We need to treat others the way that we want to be treated because it's healthy, because it's life-giving, because it reflects a just community that says what is true about God. This is how God desired them to live. And Jesus comes to say, I am fulfilling this law because I'm going to do it perfectly. I'm going to be completely obedient. I'm going to stand between God's holiness and his desire for perfection and your imperfection. Jesus' death and resurrection enables the law of God to be seared on our minds and on our hearts. We can be righteous. We can be holy people. We can be given a new heart through Jesus Christ, through him. 
God marks us off as his people. And how he desires his people to live in this world through Jesus. He meets our imperfection with his power and his presence. What we've seen over the last few weeks is this. The focus of many of these commands is to foster a social cohesion which serves not merely to make the Israelites nice people, good people, moral people, but agents of world change, agents of God's truth, image bearers of God to be a light to the nations. We saw last week how God desires his church to live to be salt that is salty, to be light that is out there, that is bright. Theologian Chris Wright wrote that many Old Testament laws are addressed to the individual as part of the community. And their purpose is not just individual uprightness, but the moral and spiritual health of that whole community. For God's purpose, as we have seen, was not to invent a production line for righteous individuals, I like that, but to create a new community of people who in their social life would embody those qualities of righteousness, peace, justice, and love that reflect God's own character and were God's original purpose for humanity. Listen, when we talk about And practice what God desires. It works out well for us, doesn't it? It works out well for our lives. God's ethic for our relationships. How we're supposed to treat each other. And be in relationship with each other. For our family dynamic. How we're supposed to parent. How we're supposed to be children. Our sexuality and how we express that. And who we believe ourselves to be. Our business practices how we handle our money, our relationship to the broader community we live in. Living God's way is freedom. In the words of Psalm 1, this kind of life gives us deep roots as individuals and as a community. In the words of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we are not a house built on the sand that gets rocked and beaten down, and crushed by the storms of life. But when we adhere to the ways of Jesus, what God says is good, how we are supposed to live, we have a solid foundation that stands tall, that stands firm when we get beat upon, when the winds and the waves crash against our lives in the midst of the chaos of this world. But when we choose to follow Jesus... And live according to his word and his truth. It is also a witness to those around us. That this is what true life really is. That this is who God is. And I talk to so many of you who experience this in your own life. That as you have made choices and decisions to follow Jesus. To obey Jesus. To to seek to conform your life to who Jesus is, that you've had family members, that you've had co-workers, that you've had neighbors 
that you've had other parents on your kids' ball teams take notice. You've had conversations with people. You've been able to speak life to people. You've been able to show people that God's way of living is truly better than any other way of living. You've been able to share that life with others around you. Following Jesus will always be repulsive, offensive, and repugnant to some. Jesus spoke his words on that mountain in the hearing of those who were self-righteous, of those religious folks whose lives were all about just conforming to the law, to being moral, good people, to making themselves feel like they were doing good. There will always be self-righteous people in this world. There will always be people who take these words of Jesus and who fail to get deeper. There will also be people who hate righteousness. In the words of Paul, the aroma of Christ will be an aroma of death to them. They will always reject the ways of Jesus. They will choose their way of life over Jesus' way of life. And listen, folks, for us, we're going to get hit on both sides. The self-righteous people are going to look at a community of people who seek to be a true community of justice and righteousness, a deep transformational community, and call us liberals. Call us people who don't care about truth, who call us people that don't value a certain way of life. And we're going to get hit on the other side by people who look at us, us and say that we're bigots, who say that we don't, we don't care about people, that we don't love people, that we're only caring about our image, that we're repressed. To be a community a true community that God desires, a community that is transformational, a community that as we are being transformed by the words of God and going into our community to be a transforming presence, we are going to face attack. But we need to know that our attack does not come from flesh and blood, but it comes from the spiritual principalities and powers that are arrayed against Jesus Christ himself. As we think about what that means for our church, we have to realize that there's a cost to truly following Jesus. There's a cost to being the covenant people of God and reflecting what that means to the nations. God's desire for the church is that as we are being transformed, that the world that is watching would know that he is God, would know that there is one God, would know that there is life found in God. It's not easy. The choices are hard. There is much resistance. But it is worth it. It is worth it for us.
I speak for myself and Pastor Nate and Pastor Andrew. That is our desire for SOMA. That we would be a community that stands in contrast to the extremes of both sides. That we would be a community that loves justice, that practices righteousness, that walks humbly with our God. We don't have it all figured out. We don't have all the answers. We're not saying that we're better than everybody else. But what we believe is that this is what God's called us to. And if we're going to take a stand, this is what it's going to be on. As you come this morning and take a piece of the bread and dip it into the juice, we recognize that our life as a church is not built on superficial practices. It's not built on trying to make ourselves right with God. But because Jesus has stood between us and God. Because Jesus, through his death and resurrection, mediates between us and God that we have the power and the presence of God to live upright and righteous lives in this present age. That we have Christ, the hope of glory, that, who lives in us. If that is you, if that is what you believe, if that is where your life is, I invite you to come and do this as a declaration, to proclaim that Christ has died, to proclaim that Christ has risen, to proclaim that Christ is coming back again. That is our hope. That is our power. That is what we cling to in a chaotic world. So I invite you to come and to participate that and to do that not just for yourself, but as a community of people that God is renewing and transforming so that we can be a transforming presence in this world. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we humbly recognize that we are prone to think that we have it all together. We are prone to think that we are good enough. We are also prone to beat ourselves up to see all the flaws, to see all of the shortcomings, to see all of the ways in which we could not possibly reflect who you are. And so this morning, Lord, we simply come and we declare that all we have is Christ. All we have is Jesus. And that is what we offer each other. That is what we offer the world, is to come and find life. We exclaim with Peter, where would we go, Lord? Only you have the words of life. I pray that you would make that true about us. And I pray that you would do a work in us as a community, that we would stand as people who love righteousness, who do justice, who walk humbly with our God. In Jesus' name, amen.